Okay, let's shut the doors. We are drawing to a close in our study of Christian evidences. And for the last little bit, we've talked about how we receive the Bible and the historical reliability and the authenticity of the scriptures. And I just, um, I had mentioned to you that by the time the King James Bible had been translated in the, you know, what, 1611, so by the, what's that, the 15th century. So by that time, there was, well, now that'd be the 17th century, right? Whatever. So by that time, when it was translated, there were approximately 5,000 copies of the Bible, particularly the New Testament. And I just wanted to compare, you know, we talked about that some who are more progressive in their view of the scriptures, including professors and, and academics, theologians, even within our own fellowship, they question some of the validity and authenticity of the scriptures because they engage in what is called textual criticism. And that generally is comparing the Bible from a critical perspective in comparison to other historical sources. Okay, so that's what's done. Now, I don't agree with that approach to studying Scripture because I start from a place of faith. And, you know, we've talked about this a thousand times. I don't think that faith is something that needs to be proven. In fact, once it is, it's not faith anymore. So, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. So I approach it totally different. But let's say even you did approach it from that perspective. Well, if we're going to compare the Bible critically against other ancient sources, you'd have to turn to the most prominent of the ancient sources that we still have. They were written and transcribed and transferred in the same manner. They were written by hand and they were translated by hand and they were copied by hand and passed down and copies were made of copies of copies of copies. So it's the same exact process. So what do we have that they compare the Bible to? Well, there's a document called Caesar's Gaelic Wars that was composed between 58 and 50 BC. So that would be right before the New Testament, by about 100 years between the Old and New Testaments. And the oldest manuscript we have of that, the oldest one, Remember, we talked about how they typically say the older it is, the more reliable, because it's been copied fewer times. That makes sense. So the oldest copy is between 825 and 875 AD. So that is 750 plus years removed from the original document. Okay? And in existence today, there are nine. Nine copies of Caesar's Gaelic Wars. 
that date from about 825 to 875 B.C. Okay, Roman, the Roman history of Livy. Livy lived between 59 B.C. and 1780, so it was written in that time. So about 30, 40 years before the composition of the New Testament. So approximately the same time frame. The oldest copy of this manuscript we have is three to 400 A.D., so we'll say 350 to split the difference. So 350 A.D., so that one's much older than, Roman, than Caesar's Gaelic Wars uh, from about the same time period, and it comes about 250 years, the oldest copy from the original writing, 300 years or so. And we have 35 of those in existence of those ancient manuscripts, 35. That one's got a lot more textual evidence. Then there's the histories and the annals of Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian who was esteemed and revered as the greatest of Roman historians. He wrote in 100 AD, so right at the close of the New Testament writing, so it's a contemporary of New Testament writings, the oldest copy we have of the annals of Tacitus is from 8 to 900 A.D., so we'll split the difference, 850 A.D. So it's 750 years removed from the original, and we have 16 copies of that, 16 copies. Then there's the minor works of Tacitus by the same author, also written in 100 A.D. Those date from 900 to 1000 A.D., so we'll say 950, the oldest copy we have. And it's easy to say the oldest copy because we have one. So we'll say 950 AD, 850 years removed from the original. We have one copy that historians teach is accurate and, and historical. One copy. It's 850 years removed from the original. Where is it here? Huh? Where is it? Where is it found? Yeah. I don't know, but it's probably found in the British Museum. If in doubt, it's in the British Museum. Okay. That's just a good rule of thumb. They have... 80% of all this stuff. The, the Jerusalem Museum has some others. Um, the Lou has a few places like that. But um, I didn't research or write down where these are located now. The history of Thysidius from 460 to 400 BC. So that would be contemporary with Malachi and the close of the Old Testament. And the oldest copy we have is 900 A.D., so we're talking 1,300 years removed from the original, and we have eight copies of that in existence. And then there's the history of Herodotus. It was written between 488 and 428 B.C., so right at the close of the Old Testament. The oldest copy we have is 900 A.D., and so it, again, is 1,400 years removed from the original. And we have today an incomplete copy that's just papyrus scraps. So pieces of it, of one copy. All of those are considered to be accurate histories by historians. In fact, anyone who compiles um, Durant, when he compiled Caesar and Christ, one of the most definitive works of of world history as far as the Roman Greek period of time that his, he leaned so heavily upon all of these because they're considered to be historically accurate his, histories of ancient time. The New Testament. 
was written between 50 and 100 AD. The oldest copy we have is 350 AD, 250 years removed from the original. You realize that matches the one best that we mentioned. So it's at the top of the tier as far as um, the closeness to the original source that we have. But here's the thing. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we have nine. Roman's History of Livy, we have 35. History of the Annals of Tacitus, 16. Minor Works of Tacitus, we have one. History of Thyodius, we have eight. And the History of Herodotus, we have parts of one. And of the New Testament, we have five thousand that except for minor minor deviations they match so if a historian is honest what's the greatest source of ancient history by their own standards you understand but it shouldn't surprise us that they don't see it that way because the devil is the Lord of this world, and he is the father of lies. The New Testament is the most supported, accurate document in all the ancient world. By everyone's standards, including the scientific method used in history to determine the accuracy and validity of a document. In fact, if they don't trust the history of the New Testament, then by their own standards, they should not, we should not have any history of the ancient world. We shouldn't know anything about it. Why? Because if you, by their own standard, dismiss what's said in the scriptures, then you must, therefore, to be consistent, dismiss everything else we have from the ancient world. Everything else we have. Comments, questions, thoughts? Yes, Ron. About this thing, just let me just ask you a question. Don't we also have a whole lot of the New Testament that is, um, you can find if you just look at the writings of church fathers? Uh huh. Quotations. Yeah, almost. And then, some of those were very Oh, very early. So we have very early. 170, something like that? 200? Yeah. Really old documents that quote the New Testament word for word, right? We also have older fragments. I didn't, those are just full manuscripts or mostly complete manuscripts. I didn't talk about the fragments. We have a fragment from 70 AD that's like, you know, a part of the book of John, like half of a page that's left, and it's been dated at 70 AD. I mean, we have old, old, old fragments. So why do you think so many want to deny the authenticity and validity and the historicity of the New Testament? Because they don't like what it says. They don't like what it says. So we're going to transfer now to a, a new study on archaeological evidence for the New Testament. So... Things from archaeology that have been found that support the, the things said in the New Testament and its accuracy and validity. We've already seen the early writings which support the claim of the Jews and the, Jesus in the New Testament. Today we look at a few recent archaeological finds which also support 
the word's accuracy. Somebody read for me Acts 21, 27 through 29. Joel? Oh, I thought you were going to read, so never mind. Uh, who's, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Silver Buick Enclave. Your car is being towed? I'm kidding, it's probably not being towed. Okay, archaeological evidence. Who's got, who'll take Acts 21, 27 through 29? Thank you, Sherry. Uh, Courtney, I'll get you in a second. Uh, John 5, 2 will be yours, Courtney. John 5, 2. Go ahead. Yes, Sherry. Okay. Uh, during the first century times, Gentiles were only allowed in the outer court of the temple, which is not actually part of the temple. Um, it was posted that the penalty for entrance was death. The Roman government so wanted to please the Jewish religious leaders that they even allowed this punishment to be acted upon Roman citizens, which is kind of a unique thing in all the world in the ancient times. Therefore, it was posted for all to see, both Greek and Latin, in Greek and in Latin, so there's no excuse for anyone not to be able to understand it, at the barricade separating the outer and to inner courts, and the Greek inscription was found in 1871 by C.S. Clermont Ganot, and it reads this, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and the enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to thank for his ensuing death. It says that in Greek. And that plaque was found in 1871 in Jerusalem. And so as you can clearly see, this discovery directly supports what was said in Acts chapter 21. Directly supports it. So that's, um, I guess what you'd say, hard historical evidence. John chapter 5 and verse 2. Okay, there's a pool called Bethsaida which has five roof colonnades. Here we read of this particular feature of first century Jerusalem. And in 1888, excavations near St. Anne's Church in Jerusalem revealed the remains of an ancient church building clearly intended to mark the site of Bethsaida. And later excavation uncovered the pools themselves. In exactly the spot in the city of Jerusalem that is recorded in John chapter 5 and verse 2. Okay, the writings of the apostolic fathers. We have today many early church writings, as was mentioned by Brother Ron, from 8090 to 160, which have quotations from other scriptures. Some examples are these. First of all, 
There's a letter to the Corinthian church from Clement of Rome in AD 96, which quotes sections of the synoptic gospels. What does that mean, synoptic gospels? Anybody know? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very, very similar. John is very different. I mean, it doesn't contradict. It just has a different objective and a different take. It quotes much of the synoptic gospels. It quotes Acts. It quotes Romans. It quotes 1 Corinthians. It quotes Ephesians. It quotes Titus. It quotes Hebrews. And it quotes 1 Peter. Written in 96 AD. So, how widespread was the word of God at that point? That's while it's still being written, or at least if you have a late date revelation view, maybe right after it's been completed. Did you say 96 AD? 96 AD. Secondly, we have the letters from Ignatius of Antioch in AD 115, which quotes parts of Matthew, John, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And that was from 115 AD. And then we have, from 120 AD, Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, which quotes from the Synoptic Gospels, from Acts, from Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Hebrews, 1 Jude, and 1 John. Did Polycarp in 120 AD have access to the same New Testament you do? Well, at least 90% of it. How many of these guys suffered natural deaths? None. Uh, uh, none of them? They were all killed for this. So hopefully you see that the date of the New Testament writings has been established as an indisputable fact. And even some uh, archaeological evidence has been found to prove that the words of the Bible are historically accurate. In fact, pretty much every time they read something in there that the, that the skeptics say, well, this wasn't true historically, then time passes and somebody finds it over and over and over. All right, questions, comments, thoughts? Yes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you've ever heard Wassam do his presentation on that, which he's done here a couple of times, um, it's eye-opening. John, you had a comment? Well, they have evidence. They have evidence. Oh. I think that the main problem is that you're talking about a deity that's not seen. And people just for some reason, they can believe all the different things of history. But when it comes to God, they, they just cannot believe it. Mm -hmm. Which is what we're going to transition into now. Which is, as we've mentioned over and over and over, we cannot prove our faith. 
Can't prove it. That would be counterproductive to what God wants. He wants us to have faith. If something's proven to you, you don't have faith in it. Now, I know we use that word sometimes incorrectly. But in scriptures, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And God wants us to choose him over another choice because he desires that we love him. Not that we just believe in him and not that we just serve him. He doesn't want slaves. He wants children that love him. And if he were to prove himself today, which I believe God could, don't you? I think he could appear in the sky, make the sun stand still. He could appear to every single human being alive and everyone on this earth would believe in him. They would. Every, everybody would believe in him. But that doesn't mean they would love him. You see, his, I hear people all the time say, well, God's ultimate aim is that people believe. That is not true. Now, you can't love him if you don't believe, but his ultimate aim is even the demons believe and tremble, is what the Bible says. But the demons don't love God. They hate God. The devil believes in God. He doesn't love God. He hates God. There are those who believe in God that don't love him. His objective is not just for people to believe. It's for people to choose him, to love him. And that requires something beyond belief. It requires faith. And faith can only exist in the absence of absolute proof. It only can. Now, there's belief with absolute proof, and there may be absolute obedience with absolute proof, but it's not faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Not seen. However, the evidence makes it completely reasonable, at least in my mind, and completely rational for a person to choose faith. Because he has, he's left us without proof. That would be counterproductive. But he has not left us without evidence. Not left us without evidence. And now what we're going to transition into is, this probably will take us the majority of our time left this month, this next month in February, to transition to the greatest evidence that is the linchpin. I mean, it is, the, it is that upon which all of it hinges. And in the skeptics and those who want to destroy faith, they know it. What's the linchpin? What's the absolute most essential claim of Scripture that if, 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 if people believe that, then they'll believe everything else. And if they don't believe it, then believing nothing else matters. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he brought himself back from the dead... That's evidence that he is who he claimed to be. And all of his words are true. If he's not, that's why skeptics have taken more time and put more effort to try to claim that Jesus is... They don't try to claim he wasn't a historical person anymore. That took place in the past, but that is absurd. I mean, he's a historical person. There's no way he wasn't because there's too many historical references to him outside of Scripture. And so it's, it, it, it is completely irrational to say that. So they'll admit he is a, a historical person. They'll just say he was a man 
who taught powerful things and had a lot of followers, but he died and his disciples didn't want him to die, so they concocted this story that he was resurrected. That's the claim. And we have to be able to determine if that, if he really is resurrected. Because if he's not, then you should be playing golf. To, well, not in Michigan. Um, you played yesterday, okay. Well, I guess today would be okay too then. You should be playing. If Jesus is not resurrected, then this is a colossal waste of time. It's foolishness. And, and it's, as Paul says, it's pitiable. We of all men should be pitied because we're just pathetic if he's not resurrected. Well, we have, um, we've addressed this. The thing is, is that the, it, you can ask your brother who's more qualified to say which is a... I mean, there's a lot of writings. I mean, he's a, he's a Jew. There are more... There, he's Jewish, you said, right? I mean, there are a lot more writings uh, uh, from the Old Testament. Why isn't the Assyrian writings in the Old Testament? Well, because the Jews knew that wasn't the inspired word of God, right? So that could be true of any, any collection of... Of, or gathering of writings. Well, who's more qualified to say this is authentic and this isn't? People who are 2,000 years removed, even if they have PhDs? Or people who lived in the same time as they were being written? What we have, like we just read for you, there was your answer. Clement of Rome wrote in 120 AD and listed the same books that we have now. See what I mean? So they had already determined which ones were authentic 1900 years ago and they were more qualified than we are to i mean who are we to question them you, you know no i'm not i know i know i'm just saying that's how that's how you'd argue it is that you know if you um if you saw an eye if you were an eyewitness to something and somebody comes along and says well but this happened too and you say no it didn't i was there who's more qualified to say what happened polycarp was a direct disciple of the apostle. He saw them. He was there, right? Um, Ignatius, same thing. All of these folks were, they saw it with their own eyes. They are qualified to tell us what is authentic and what isn't. And to, and to play um, backseat driver or, you know, uh, bench warming quarterback. How do you say that? Monday morning quarterback. That's exactly what we're doing 1900 years removed when anyone questions, because we've known, we've known those letters existed forever. I mean, everybody does. They were letters. But at the time, they, they determined what's in the Scripture, not somebody 500 years later or 700 years later. People in the actual time who knew the apostles are the ones who passed that down to us. Does that give you a good answer? Also, most of those, many of those letters are dated much later than the testifiers. Oh, yeah, many of them. Yeah, it wasn't even written at the time. Those letters he's talking about weren't written. Those are 
at the time of the apostles. No, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. That's a wonderful question, and people need to know the answer to that. Okay? So, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of our Lord from the dead is of such vital importance to our faith that if it is not so, our lives are nothing more than a big joke. It's just the truth. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19. He'll take that for us. Lots of volunteers today. Wonderful. Okay, Don, I'll get you there. Um, someone else, when we get there, John eleven twenty five. We'll take that back here. Romans 1, 3 through 4. Thank you, John. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Right? And then John 20, 1 through 8. Can, can I add one? Well, I guess. One to your list? Sure. Romans 4, 25. Okay, you read that one when, we, when it's the right time. Okay, I'll okay. call on you. Somebody take John 20, 1 through 8. Thank you, Courtney. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19. Paul doesn't pull any punches, does he? Our faith is futile. Then we preach an absolute ridiculous, futile doctrine. And our faith of all men, if we only have hope in this life, then we are of all men most to be pitied. You know why? Because we've wasted our life. That's the implication, right? I remember hearing, when I was growing up, brethren say things in Bible classes. My dad was teaching or whatever. Things like, well, you know, the Christian life is so wonderful that if I, you know, even if, even if it weren't true, I'd still want to live this way. Paul wouldn't agree with you. In fact, he doesn't agree with you. He says, you know, if, if Christ is not resurrected, we're living in a fantasy. We are, we are like cosplayers. You know what, anybody know what those are? Those people who dress up like comic book characters or whatever it may be or or Dungeons and Dragons people, or, and they walk. I went to a game convention one time in Memphis, Tennessee, and because I like to play board games, me and my buddy Patrick did, and it was a different world. <laughs> it was a different world. There, I think we were the only two people there who didn't live in our parents' basement. <laughs> and we were definitely the only two people there who were married. But some of them were on the prowl. We sat next to a guy playing games with him, and he says, I'm going to go scope out all the babes at the nacho table. They had a, yes, they didn't have hors d'oeuvres. They had a nacho table. And I said to him, I said, well, you better look hard because they're all wearing elf ears. Every single girl there had elf ears on. Okay. And if that's your thing, then power to you. That's great. But you realize that if Jesus isn't resurrected from the dead, that's all we're doing. We're just pretending. But we think it's real. 
but we're pretending. That's pretty sad, right? It's pretty sad. That's what Paul says. So if he's not, you better believe 100% he's resurrected from the dead or you are wasting your life. Huh? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. He'll say that in 1 Corinthians 15 too. For tomorrow we die. Party and have a good time. Look out for number one. This is all you got. This is all you got. So, there's that statement of the Apostle Paul, and he's absolutely right. The resurrection is absolutely vital to the key principles of Christianity that Christ took care of man's sin on the cross and man's death in his resurrection. He defeated sin and death. Sin and death. The resurrection is the greatest of all miracles where Jesus proved his divinity and his absolute power over the grave. John eleven twenty five. This is, of course, at the instance of uh, Lazarus is about to be raised from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. He boldly made that claim. Romans chapter 1, 3 through 4. How was his power demonstrated? By his resurrection from the dead. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorporable and undefiled, and that faith is not away, reserved in heaven for you. He has given us a living hope by the resurrection, his resurrection from the dead. And then you had a text you wanted to share. Uh, yes, but for, our, but for ours also, I will be, will be coming to us and leaving him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, in verse 25, who was delivered up for our trans, trans, trespasses and was raised for our justification. Was, so if he was not raised, we could not be justified. Right. Romans. That's Romans uh, 4. I read verses 23 through 25. Romans 4, 23 through 25. So therefore, all who would discredit our Bible would attempt to portray the account of the resurrection as a hoax or a misunderstanding. They have to. And if they win in that regard, then they have accomplished what they aim to do. Today, we will discuss some of the critics' solutions and see if they have any validity. Okay, read for us John 20, 1 through 8. Now on the first day of the, of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have taken laid him. Laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth laying there, 
but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths laying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not laying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Well, that's the account of the resurrection from the book of John, chapter 20. So, what are the arguments that the skeptics make? And I'm going to share with you several, at least three, that are most common. Because they have to have an explanation. Why do they have to have an explanation? Because clearly the apostles taught, and the early church, and every Christian for the last 2,000 years since, has believed that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. So people believed it's true. So it has to be a hoax or a misunderstanding, right, in their mind. So they need to find some rational explanation as to what really happened, that people thought he was resurrected. The first is this, and this is probably the one they go to the most, the disciples stole his body. That's what they say, the disciples stole his body. Jesus said, they put together all the things Jesus said about I'll, this temple will be torn down and raised again in three days. I must be resurrected from the dead. He said it plainly. So they put that together and they concocted a scheme to continue his religion and they stole his body and they hid it somewhere else in some unknown grave somewhere that's never been found. That's kind of the theory. Okay, um, if that is valid, then we need to look at it and examine its validity and see if there's any, if it has a credible, you know, any credibility as far as being able to be supported. So this school of thought attests that the disciples stole the body to make it appear that their master had risen from the dead on the third day as he foretold. Several things make this an absolute impossibility. Absolute impossibility. Number one, Pilate... And let me assign out some more verses so we have them ready to go. Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Thank you, Don. Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Thank you, Bob. Uh, let me see. I don't know how far we'll get, but we'll try. Um, no, we won't get there. Okay. So Pilate was sufficiently impressed with the Jewish leader's concerns that he issued a Roman guard to seal and to guard the tomb. Matthew 27, 62 through 66. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell, and tell the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate okay. said to them, Do you have a guard of soldiers? Go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone with, and setting the guard. Okay. Uh, someone else read for us then Matthew 28, 11 through 15.
they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Okay, so this theory didn't come from modern skeptics. The Jews made it up, okay? But there's some interesting dynamics here. What kind of soldiers were these that were guarding the tomb? Because originally, in the text that Don read, he said, take some soldiers and guard the tomb, make it as secure as if you want. First of all, who is it that cares if he's resurrected or not? Pilate or the Jews? The Jews. Does Pilate care? Pilate don't care, except that he needs to make the Jews happy, right? So Pilate tells them, make sure it's as secure as you want. Did Pilate need, if they were temple guards, in other words, and they had those, they had temple guards, who answered directly to the Sanhedrin, did Pilate need to give them the guards or give them permission for those guards to guard the tomb? No. They answered directly to the high priest. So he didn't need to give them. This is a Roman guard. A Roman guard of the Roman legions. That's an important factor because we're talking about the difference between Navy SEALs and Boy Scouts, okay? I mean, that's the, no offense to you Eagle Scouts, all right? But you're not Navy SEALs yet, okay? So that's the difference. I mean, Roman soldiers were the most powerful army in the world. They're the world's first professional soldiers. And they took it very, very seriously because what happens in Philippi later in Acts chapter 16 if they lose their prisoners? What was he terrified of? They, the penalty for losing your prisoners, if you are a Roman soldier, is you are put to death. Sometimes your family's put to death, too. It's serious business. That's why they go, do they go to Pilate and tell him, well, oh, you know, this happened. And, no. Why don't they do that? They'd be put to death. I mean, they're derelict in their duties. So they go to the priests. They go to the Jews and tell them what happened. And the Jews bribe them. If they work for the priest, would they have needed to be bribed by the priest? No. And would they have needed to be protected from Pilate? No. They're Roman guards. So the elite soldiers who did not lose prisoners by, unless it was at their own demise and sometimes their family's demise were there. Now, Pilate was pretty serious about this, and they knew it. They knew the political situation of the time. Why do you think Pilate? Pilate is the proconsul of the, the entire region of Judea. What that means is he is a member of the senatorial class of Roman society. He is the highest class of Roman. He also holds one of the highest positions a Roman can hold. He, but there was lots of politics in Rome. Lots. Pilate had been appointed to that position by a man who had tried to overthrow the emperor and been put to death just a few years before this happened. That is why he wants to set Jesus free, doesn't he? Pilate's emotions, what, <coughs> what did they say? What did they say that made Pilate change and put him to the cross? Does anybody remember? You are not a friend of Caesar. 
And the, I promise you, the Jews knew what to say to make Pilate do what they wanted. Pilate was under constant scrutiny as to whether he was loyal. As to whether he was loyal or like the, the person who had been his mentor and appointed him to his office, if he was a traitor. So you think there were spies in Pilate's palace? For sure. You think there was constant scrutiny of his leadership? For sure. And he does not want to put Jesus to death. Clearly, his wife doesn't want him to put Jesus to death. Pilate only does it when they say to him, we have no king but Caesar. It's when Jesus says, yes, I am a king of the Jews, that Jesus' fate was sealed. If Jesus hadn't said that, I, I don't think, but the, the divine will and scheme of redemption would not have been fulfilled. I don't know that Pilate would have put him to death. Pilate did not want to do that. But they put him between a rock and a hard place where he has to choose between his own neck because he's, he's got a very hard job. You know, the hardest post in the world in the first century for a Roman proconsul was where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They were the most seditious people on the planet. They were nuts. They had an entire group called the Zealots, one of which was Jesus' disciple, who their initiation into the society of Zealots was they had to walk through a crowded um, you know, marketplace and stab a Roman in the back and blend into the crowd. They were murderous. And I mean, thousands of Jews, innocent Jews were killed. They hated the Zealots too because the Zealots got innocent people killed. They were terrorists. And Rome tried to handle them. It was very hard to do. Why do you think that Rome allowed them to put something on their temple that said, if, even if a Roman walks in here, a Roman citizen, Roman citizens had more rights than anybody on the planet. But even if, a, if Pilate had walked in, I mean, that's the thing. They were constantly trying to give con concessions because these people were hard to deal with. So what do you think his soldiers, do you think they're going to stand guard diligently they're not falling asleep no way it's just basic human nature they were looking out for their own skin and they knew Pilate wouldn't tolerate that business at all not at all we're out of time we'll get to more of it next week